Hey everybody, welcome to the Ambit Podcast in which we discuss tech, business, and entrepreneurship. Today is an extremely exciting episode in which Ryan Shearman, the founder and CEO of Aether Diamonds, joins the pod to discuss how his company makes diamonds from thin air. Yes, you heard that right. Ryan, thank you for taking the time to come on the pod. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. To start off here, one of the ways to create diamonds in the past, and you can still do it, is by having carbon deposits between 90 to 125 miles below the surface of the Earth, which can take anywhere between months to millions of years to materialize. And then they come to the surface from natural events such as volcanic eruptions or then being mined from the land. But your company can take diamonds from the carbon in our atmosphere. So before we get too deep into it, would you mind sharing more about your background and how you came up for the idea with Aether? Absolutely. So my degree is in mechanical engineering. You know, much of what I did early in my career related to materials and the development of consumer products. Um, I cut my teeth in the jewelry industry working for a, a designer called David Yerman. Uh, based in New York City, uh, global headquarters down in Tribeca. That's actually where I met my co-founder, Dan. Uh, my job there was to develop new consumer products for our men's line. Uh, Dan worked on the women's line. And uh, you know, between the stuff that I was working on and the stuff that he was working on, it gave us broad exposure to kind of the finer workings of how the jewelry industry operates. Um, a lot of what I got to do on the men's product line related to collections that featured new materials that were not really previously endemic to jewelry whether that be meteorite or various composite materials, fossilized organics. Uh, we did a bunch of really interesting stuff. So that gave me, I think, really a great baseline going into, you know, what we're doing with Ether. Ether kind of sits in that overlap of the Venn diagram being, you know, jewelry and, and technology. And, and uh, I think as an engineer with materials experience coming into the jewelry world, that made me kind of uniquely, you know, well-suited, I should say, for doing something like this. And what gave you the idea specifically to create diamonds using carbon instead of just a regular jewelry company? You know, I had been paying attention to what was happening with regular lab-grown diamonds since my time at David Yerman. Um, you know, I remember sparking up conversations with people and, and even folks who had been in the industry. And it, it surprised me how few actually knew about lab-grown diamonds and, you know, it, we were a luxury brand, so it really was not part of our plan to integrate lab-grown diamonds into our collection. Um, so, of course, you know, certain people within the company just didn't know about it, but it kept kind of coming up. Uh, after I, I ended up leaving David Yerman, I took some time off from jewelry. I started a company in the action sports, power sports market, and, you know, then I was exposed to an entirely different you know, industry and, and no one there really knew anything about lab grown diamonds, but I always kind of kept my ear to the ground. In 2017, I remember very, very specifically, um, we had a number of hurricanes that hit and, and caused, you know, widespread damage in the American Southeast and the Caribbean. And this was the first time, I mean, listen, Hurricane Sandy hit New York, but it didn't really, it wasn't the same scale of destruction you know, this whole tri-state area got hit pretty hard with, with Sandy. And, and that was kind of like my first taste of like, hey, climate change is really going to potentially cause some some really widespread havoc and, and destruction here, like in my lifetime. Um, and then all of a sudden 2017 came along and, you know, we had, you know, in very close succession, three hurricanes land here on, on U.S. soil as well as in, you know, the islands. And I got to see 
the lives of people I knew be upended in, in really mis, you know, material ways. And that's when I decided I wanted to do something that was climate oriented. We ended up selling off that business. Um, I knew my next venture was going to be something climate related, got to having conversations with my co-founder while I happened to be reading a book called Drawdown that it's an anthology that kind of covers all of the different things that humanity is currently doing to address climate change, natural solutions, engineered solutions. And at the tail end of that book, it's like a coming soon. There was a section about direct air capture. And I was just, this was, you know, keep in mind, probably early 2018, I was amazed that we had figured out how to chemically remove CO2 from the air. And then I started digging in a little deeper and realized there are two challenges. What do you do with the carbon? Right. That's a big thing. You can pull it out of the air. You can pump it underground. It makes it, you know, kind of difficult from a unit economics perspective. Uh, and then the operating costs are expensive. So while I was reading that and having conversations with with Dan about the world of, of jewelry, it, it, the word carbon just kept coming up. And then there was the light bulb moment. You know, hey, diamonds are just made of carbon. We've got too much of it in our air. What if we could take this abundant and harmful form of carbon that is warming the planet and turn it into a rare, covetable, beautiful form of carbon that warms the heart? And that's how the whole thing got started. Yeah, that's a great story. I mean, even now, I remember just a few months ago, we were in a tornado event. There were like a bunch of tornadoes around my area. And it was crazy to see because it was a tornado just a couple blocks down and it was destroying houses. And even now, the temperature on the East Coast, some days it was 72 and then the next day it's in the low 30s. So it's, it's pretty crazy to see. When you were growing up in the summers, you spend almost all your time outside every day. And now, according to the EPA, people spend, on average, 93% of their lives indoors. Tell the audience a little bit more about that experience growing up and how it built the foundation for your awareness about the environment. Yeah, I mean, for me, from you know my earliest memories, when we moved to the town that I grew up in, I think I was four or five years old. And... You know, we had a yard and my parents were just, it was expected that we were going to play outside. You know, if we weren't in school, we were outside. Summer breaks, I, there were probably stretches of time where like, like most kids, I couldn't tell you what day of the week it was, but I'd just been outdoors for weeks at a time. Um, big into bicycles, uh, both kind of regular BMX bikes on the street, as well as, you know, doing some, uh, you know, more mountain bike riding in the woods and that kind of evolved. And then I started riding dirt bikes. And, and for me, you know, the outdoors just played such a, a pivotal role in my life and my upbringing, it instilled, you know, a, a deep seated love, not even an appreciation, but a love for, for everything that comes with that. My biggest passions outside of building companies, which I, I really do. Uh, I think you have to, you have to love it to, to do it um, in, in the way, at least that I've gone about it. But my, my biggest passions outside of entrepreneurship and, and building companies is again, snowboarding, riding motorcycles. Um, I can't say that I love hiking for the sake of hiking, but I really love getting out in the outdoors. My brothers are, are big hikers. So when, whenever they can drag us along, my wife and I, and, you know, sometimes my son, uh, it's a, it's a great way to be in nature, surround yourself in it and get, get enveloped in it. And I still love that. You know, my dream destination for going on vacation is not necessarily like going to some far off exotic place as much as it's like a quiet cabin in the woods. So for me, that'll always be a, a core part of my identity. And if we can do what we're doing at scale, my hope is that, you know, this business and the impact we can drive will ultimately help 
provide that type of future for future generations, for my children, for their children. Those are some excellent points. And to wrap back around to Ether Diamonds, how much carbon from the air is actually needed to make one of your diamonds? So one, I mean, a diamond is just pure carbon. So we get this question a lot. Uh, how much carbon is in each diamond? Well, if it's a one carat diamond, there's one carat of carbon. Um, it, a natural diamond from the ground can be as low as about 99% carbon and 1% other things. That's actually one of the ways we can tell if a diamond is uh, manufactured in a laboratory or dug up from the ground. If it's dug up from the ground and you know it'll have those impurities. Diamonds from a lab are in fact more pure. It's a remarkably efficient process. So not a lot of carbon gets lost back out to the atmosphere. The vast majority of that gets captured. So the direct impact of the diamond is not all of the carbon that gets stored in the stone, but the economic potential that the sale of that stone unlocks. So we go and we can sell a diamond um, and you know do it at a, at a competitive price point. And then all of a sudden take a portion of our profits and use that to further invest in carbon reduction methodologies and practices. So we do that with a network of partners. We're very excited to be able to kind of find really exciting new frontier solutions and use our capital as a non-dilutive source of funding for those projects to help them get off the ground. Our, one of our overarching goals is to help direct air capture technologies become a little bit more cost-effective by bringing non-dilutive capital into that market, but then augmenting that with all of these other you know, natural and engineered solutions that we fund. So uh, what we do all in on a per carat basis, we've, we've committed to a 20-ton goal. So that's actually over the average American's carbon footprint is about 16 metric tons. So 20 tons is over a year's worth of carbon for the average American. And we've committed to pulling an additional 20 tons out of the air for every one carat of diamond that we sell. So the net amount is whatever is in the, whatever's in the given stone plus 20 tons per carat that we sell. And, uh, and it's a pretty significant amount of carbon at the end of the day. And, and we're really proud about that. One of those things that Gen Z and the next generation is focused on a lot nowadays is the environment and healthcare with the environment being at number one. When you're selling the diamonds, do you advertise to the customer how many metric tons by buying this diamond you're removing from the air? And if not, do you plan to do so in the future? We do. If you go to our website on any given product style, you can go and as you're picking your, you know, if it's, if it's a, say it's a ring, right? Not an engagement ring. Say it's just like a ring, very much like the one I'm wearing here. You know, the number of diamonds on this is fixed depending on the size of the ring. So you select your ring size and it tells you right here, you are now going to offset the next year of your life, the next two years of your life, whatever it might be. Um, you know, some bracelets, we have a new bracelet that we're releasing in, in, uh, in May as part of our spring collection. It has 8.7 carats of diamonds on it. So that we're, we're, we're putting into a higher class of product, um, you know, that'll offset over 10 years of your life. So in addition to getting this, this amazing, beautiful piece of jewelry, the next decade, you don't have to worry about your carbon footprint, right? And that's a big part of what we're trying to do here is allow consumers to have an outsized impact without dramatically having to change their behaviors, right? If you are already in the market for a nice big bracelet, a nice statement piece that you're going to wear to a night out, uh, a gala event, a wedding, whatever it might be, you are already going to do that by coming and, and, and patronizing our brand and and becoming a, a, a part of this ether universe that we're creating. You're you're now going and, and driving real impact. And if we can we can build up our cohort, our village of you know enthusiastic customers as we continue to grow that base, the, the potential for the impact we can have is really substantial. 
That's awesome. And one of the questions that might pop up from the audience is, well, how do these prices compare to those of lab-grown diamonds or ones that are mined? So we are priced closer to mine diamond pricing. Uh, regular lab-grown diamonds are made with uh, carbon that comes from fossil fuels. Um, abundantly ready, the technology for extracting you know fossil fuels from the ground, you know whether that be uh, through the extraction and refinement of crude oil or fracking, there's a lot of infrastructure that's relatively inexpensive and that passes through to the cost of making a regular lab-grown diamond. An ether diamond uh, is produced with carbon from the air. Every atom of our diamond came directly from the atmosphere. So part of that's a little bit more expensive. And we just, for you know, based on the upfront expenses related to our production, we've priced ourselves where we're at currently. Um, as we scale, who knows where that can go? You know, economies of scale can allow us to do new and interesting things, but we got to get to scale first. Got it. And what is the process of capturing that carbon from the air and actually turning it into the diamonds? So essentially what we've done is partnered with a company called Climeworks. They're based in Switzerland. Uh, they have uh, their new orca plant in Iceland. However, we're sourcing our CO2 from their Switzerland facility. We don't have to worry about actually doing the extraction work ourselves. They have a phenomenal piece of technology that pulls the CO2 uh, through a chemical process. So you can almost think of it as a vacuum cleaner or you know a, a filter of sorts. And as the air comes through, instead of just physically stopping it in like the mesh of a filter, it's actually chemically bonding to the CO2. Uh, so they have a way of extracting the CO2 and then we are an off takers. We come in, we, we will bring a, a large vessel, a tank that gets filled up with CO2 directly on site. We take that and we put it through the rest of the process to turn it into a diamond. Got it. And what is that rest of that process or is it proprietary? So certain elements are, are certainly proprietary. I, I can't go too much into the weeds on it, but essentially in order to grow a diamond in a, in a chemical vapor deposition reaction, you need an ultra high purity hydrocarbon base. So we produce the most simplistic hydrocarbon, CH4, otherwise known as methane, the, you know, the active fuel source in, in natural gas. We take this CO2, we turn it into CH4. Uh, the, the way we do that is proprietary. And then that CH4 is the perfect feedstock for CBD reactor. So whereas all of our, the regular lab grown companies that I had mentioned, they're simply buying methane that comes from oil and gas companies on the open market. And it's done at a remarkably lower cost than converting CO2 into that methane. The, the beauty here is, you know, when we're done, we can ensure this is exactly where this diamond came from. We know where the, where the carbon was captured. This came from Hinville, Switzerland in October of 2021. And today it's a two and a half carat diamond ring that you are proposing to your you know, significant other with. So it, having that level of, of transparency into the provenance of the materials is something that this industry has not really been that great at um, on purpose, by design. This industry has obfuscated supply chains and we want to come in and, and do something that is at face value, completely opposite and, and deliver to our consumers you know, a, a complete story. Got it. And from your business model, you seem to be focusing on B2C, which makes the most sense at this stage. However, in the longer run, do you plan to sell carbon negative diamonds at a wholesale price to established brands like Tiffany & Co? Sure. And that's actually a big part of, of our growth plans for this year. We did launch direct-to-consumer because our manufacturing footprint was quite small. It, being able to balance demand and supply was, was always and still is to this day, you know, kind of a bit of it's a balancing act, a juggling act, if you will. We 
are now ramping up our manufacturing in a significant way. We, we just announced uh, our Series A raise. Uh, we raised $18 million from some uh, phenomenal uh, investors, and, and we're using the majority of that capital to scale our manufacturing. Uh, and really what that will enable us to do is establish not only relationships with biggest heritage brands, you know, household brand names that you know we would all know, but also a tight network of specialty retailers, independent jewelers, not going to your shopping mall and, and pick one of the four jewelry stores that's in every other shopping mall, but uh, boutique stores that, that you might find in major cities predominantly. And we'll build a network of a couple hundred of those as we start this year. And, and then, you know, the first big brand announcement uh, will come later this year. Yeah, congrats on your Series A. That's a that's a big step, especially that most founders can't even make it to that level. So congratulations. But where did you get the idea for your name Ether? Well, Ether means air. You know, the 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 name is steeped in romanticism and it's one that goes way way back historically speaking. Um it was coined first by the ancient Greeks. Uh Ether was the personified upper atmosphere. Our, our own internal mythology kind of goes beyond that. We are our reactor that turns the CO2 into CH4. We call Nix. And in Greek mythology, Nix was the mother of ether. Uh, but ether is, is the rarefied air that the gods on Mount Olympus breathed in. We lowly humans down on the ground just had regular air. Uh, then, you know, that was, was kind of co-opted and in the medieval ages, it became the fifth alchemical element. So the precursor to, uh, or the predecessor to chemistry was alchemy. And this was the fifth alchemical element. It was the medium through which light traveled. It was something that was then adopted by early chemists and scientists and, and uh, impacted kind of modern astrophysics. Um, you know, this is going back to like the early 1900s, but we would have astrophysicists who believed that there was this medium that light traveled through. And ultimately this was disproven, um, you know, somewhere in the mid 1900s, uh, but ether really has popped up at multiple times throughout human history. And we love that. You know, it, one of the things we say is, you know, the only thing that has sold a diamond is a story. And this name is imbued with all of these different you know, kind of romantic and mystical kind of elements that help really set the stage for what we're doing and the brand that we're looking to build. So that's where the name came from. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, we're going to be doing some interesting stuff in terms of how we position that and how we tell that story. One of the big things that we've we've heard, uh, you know, from our customers and from our, our fans is, hey, we love what you're doing. You know, tell us more about the, the why and the how. And, and, and those are the kind of stories that we're going to be leaning into. That's a very fascinating story. And going to the diamonds, some of the people during hearing this will say, yeah, but it's not like real diamonds. It's more like an quote unquote artificial one. What is your response to that? We have artificial diamonds. It's cubic zirconia. It's moissanite. It's all of these simulants that, you know, don't get you quite there. They can get you close. What we're producing is at, at the atomic level identical to what comes out of the ground. You know, this isn't going in and buying a fake purse or a fake watch that's kind of like it. This is as if you stumbled into the same factory and built the watch with the same parts, with the same set of hands that's doing it normally. I mean, it's the same exact end product. Um, there's there's quantitative and qualitative elements to that. I, like I said before, our diamonds are more pure. They are what are what is known as a type 2A diamond, meaning it's there's no nitrogen in our stones. It's, it's carbon. That's really important. It lends to a better quality. So when you're buying a diamond, 
many consumers have heard of the four C's. This is something that can impact the color uh, and the clarity of the stone. And that's something that is really important at the end of the day, because we all want that stone that's the most brilliant and faces up nicely and, and, and has that pop that has that fire and, and we can bring that in spades. So at the end of the day, not everybody is going to embrace diamonds that are made in a laboratory. Regular lab grown diamonds are a step in the right direction. They avoid, when they were first introduced, I said, this is brilliant. It avoids the, the human rights and, and social concerns that historically have plagued the diamond trade. There are consumers plainly that don't care about that. They don't care about the fact that there are still things happening in the diamond trade that, you know, if they were happening in our backyard, if we had more visibility into it, people would be appalled. Right. Right. But at the end of the day, if you're pulling a diamond out of the ground, no matter where you are on the planet, you know, even we have mining operations in Canada, which is you know, not far away. This is not a far off land. And you look at the before and after pictures when they established a mining operation in a given area, and it blows your mind you know, how someone could come and find this pristine, untouched environment and then destroy it. So, you know, we're, we're coming in and we're doing something that is absolutely different. What do we provide that no one else does? It's the impact, right? So you are buying a real diamond. Even the Federal Trade Commission has said, you know, lab-grown diamonds are diamonds. This is pure atomic carbon. It's got all of the properties that a, a diamond from the mind has, but none of the negative externalities. And, and we go beyond that by flipping the script and saying, it's not about who harms the planet the least. We, we are familiar with conflict diamonds. These are impact diamonds. You know, this is a whole new category of stone. And one of the things that makes traditional diamonds very expensive is its rarity. If you get to economies of scale, do you think it will have an impact on diamond rarity and therefore decrease the price? Yeah, so rarity is an interesting question and an interesting topic. Uh, there's a kind of this misunderstanding that maybe diamonds aren't so rare and you know there's warehouses full of them and and some of that was true historically the monopolistic cabal that controlled the market was kind of disassembled about 30 years ago and there's still that mythology that exists a lot of people still think it's it's the case and it's not there's no one entity that still runs this market um, diamonds are becoming increasingly rare we actually had peak diamond output in 2017 so every year from 2017 forward fewer and fewer stones are coming up out of the ground we're closing mines we're not opening new mines it's no longer economically viable to open a large-scale diamond mine from scratch Right. The diamond deposits are either way too deep in the earth uh, or, or hard to reach for other reasons, and, and it doesn't make it economically viable. So diamond rarity is going to increase by virtue of the fact that we are doing this at such small scale. Our diamonds are the rarest on the planet as of right now. And even if we get to insane scale, even if we were the largest lab grown diamond producer on the planet, which we intend to be in the not so distant future, we're still going to be making up a small percentage of the global output. So uh, we're, we're not worried about shifting the market dynamics in too crazy a way where, you know, rarity all of a sudden goes out the window. And, you know, we're only going to see diamond mines continue to close. In fact, over the next 19 years, by 2040, 18 years now, by 2040, 70% of all of the diamond mines that are operational today will be closed. Because we know what, you know, when you open a new diamond mine, you've done your geological surveys, you know how big the kimberlite deposit is. Kimberlite is the, the rock formation where diamonds are found. Yep. So we know that there's a 30-year mine here, right? We know there's a 10-year mine here. We know there's a 50-year mine here. And that's all disclosed when you're filing your permits and getting all situated to, to you know, establish your mine. So we know when they're going to close, give or take, you know, a couple of years here and there. So within 18 years, 70% of those mines that are operating today will be closed. Output will cut in half. 
some of the larger mines that you know are responsible for a good portion of our output those are expected to stay open beyond that threshold but by how long not that not that far out into the into the into the future so it is it is well within reason to say in our lifetime the majority of diamonds being brought to market will be lab grown but again it's going to be so far out in the future till we get to the point globally, let alone any one company where we're pumping out enough diamonds. It still takes a while to grow the diamonds. It's a, it's a remarkably complex process and it's one that's hard to do. Everyone does it a little bit differently. Uh, we have a a, a partner that we, we work with on the actual growing portion and they're renowned at it. You know, they, they have wonderfully intelligent and talented PhDs who have specialized certain parts of the process. And, and we work with them in order to, to ensure that the, the caliber of the stones that we're bringing to market is, you know, at the top end. And, uh, it's just, there's so many different dynamics that play like dealing with rarity and, and whether or not we'll, uh, we'll, we'll change that dynamic anytime soon is, is really not something that we're worried about. Got it. And to wrap it up here, what are your takeaways from the audience and where can people find more about your company, Ether Diamonds? Well, I, uh, well, first and foremost, thanks for having me. This is, uh, yeah. this is great. I, I love talking about what we're doing because I'm so passionate about the mission and, uh, and being able to get that story out there is always uh, something that excites me. Uh, if someone's interested in learning more, uh, the first place to go would be etherdiamonds.com. Uh, we always encourage people to follow our journey on social media at etherdiamonds on pretty much every platform. I, I actually, I think we are officially now at Ether Diamonds. We had a couple handles that had to uh, catch up, but yeah. now we are universally at Ether Diamonds. So those are the, the best places to go. And, uh, and you know, if anyone has any questions, they can always email us. It's human at etherdiamonds.com. And that will go to a real live human being. And you know, we're, we're, we pride ourselves on being able to get back to people quickly and, and really give that, that white glove treatment to all, all customers who reach out. Sounds great. Well, Ryan, I really appreciate you taking the time to hop on the podcast. It was an excellent conversation, and uh, I love learning more about your company, Ether, and I hope to have you back sometime in the future. Well, thanks for having me again. This was a pleasure. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the MBIT podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to drop a five-star review down below, and we'll see you in the next episode.